You're listening to AshCast, the podcast of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. We believe that there's no way you can develop a slum upgrading program if you don't involve the people of the community that you're going to transformate in the process of that transformation, you're going to have a lot of trouble. On Thursday, November 7th, the Ash Center hosted a discussion with Juan Ignacio Maquera, Master's in Public Policy at the Kennedy School, graduating in 2014, President of the Housing Authority of the City of Buenos Aires. Candelaria Gureyev, Ford Foundation Associate Professor of Democracy, moderated. Thank you for coming here today. It is an honor for me uh, to introduce our speaker, Juan Ignacio Maquera. Juan is an alumnus of the Kennedy School who graduated from the MPP program in 2014. Since 2016, Juan has presided the Housing Authority of the City of Buenos Aires, Argentina, and has led a major slum upgrading initiative. Through democratic deliberation, this program involves slum residents in the design and implementation of upgrading interventions. This process of deliberation is broad, deep, and highly innovative. I just want to note that inadequate housing is one of the most urgent social problems in Latin America and in the developing world more generally. According to the United Nations Habitat, 29% of the population in developing countries and 24% in Latin America live in slum conditions. Slums are defined as a contiguous settlement that lacks one or more of the following five conditions, access to clean water, access to improved sanitation, sufficient living area that is not overcrowded, secure tenure, and durable housing. The policy initiative that Juan will present today makes an important contribution to our thinking of how to tackle this vast and urgent problem. Therefore, it is an honor for us to have him here today. Before we start, I want to thank the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University for co-sponsoring the event. And I would like to let you know that this discussion is being audio recorded and photographed for educational purposes. Thank you, Juan. Good afternoon, and thank you for being here. Thanks to Cancelia, and thanks to the Ash Center, too, for the invitation. It is an honor to be here sharing some ideas on some of the work that we've been doing at the Housing Institute in Buenos Aires. I will discuss briefly some of the insights on what we've done and, and the vision that we have regarding housing, but I would I will go with a little bit with a little bit of more detail into how we are doing that because I think what we can share with you that it's going to be interesting and that it's I think uh, something pretty good that we've been doing has to do with how we approach these processes and it has to do with a deep uh, vocation to establish processes that are participatory in different levels. So in Buenos Aires we have around. Uh, 250,000 people living in slums, in different slums throughout the city. We are working in eight of those slums nowadays, and we are having an impact on around uh, a little bit over 100,000 people. It's almost 40% of the people that are uh, in slums, the ones that we are working with. It's probably one of the most uh, ambitious programs in Latin America in terms of scale and also in terms of investment. But like I said, what I want to share with you is what we're doing in terms of how we are approaching these uh, processes. In terms of the what, in terms of what we are doing, we are working with three dimensions. We are working, first of all, with the house itself. 
trying to promote housing integration, that means that every family has access to an adequate house, and that has three dimensions, three sub-dimensions having to do with the housing solutions, with the formal access to public services, and also with security and tenure, which is a huge thing in terms of slum upgrading, both for houses that you are going to improve and for houses that you construct. And when you move people there, it's very, very important to work for security of, of tenure. But if you have an adequate house, but you live in a neighborhood that is completely uh, disconnected from the city, there's no way you can be a citizen in, its, in the full sense of the word that you're actually integrated to the city of Buenos Aires. So you have to have an adequate house, but you have to live in a neighborhood that is actually integrated to the city. That's why we're working with the dimension of urban integration, and we work with mobility, also with uh, public space in general, and also with general infrastructure. We try that every neighborhood where we're working in, it's integrated to the city, and we also try that the city integrates to the neighborhood. That's why, for example, we build uh, different markets in the different uh, neighborhoods, promoting the rest of the city to come to these markets. In one of the neighborhoods, we have a huge, um, we have the river next to the neighborhood, so we are building a viewpoint for the river in order for the rest of the city to come. There's a lot of running happening near the, these neighborhoods that we are creating running lanes so people can actually enter the neighborhoods once we finished with the social integration program. And finally, if you are a, a neighbor from one of these places and you have an adequate house and you have a neighborhood that is actually integrated to the rest of the city, but if you don't have access to health, to education, and to a proper job, then probably you're going to be disconnected to the rest of the city anyway and you're going to be disintegrated too. So that's why we are working with socioeconomic integration. All of the interventions that we have involved building either schools or kindergartens, if that's what it's needed on the slum, also health centers. And for each of these uh, sub-dimensions that we have, we have different lines of work and different indicators. We are working with a matrix that I will show you at the end of the presentation, where we start measuring every one of these aspects. So once we finish the process, or once we are going on the process, but let's say two years from now, we can see if we have advanced or if we haven't, and we can give the people the possibility to actually evaluate if we've been up to the task or not, because they're going to be able to evaluate what we've been doing. Like I said, the whole idea of, of today's presentation is not completely related to what we do, but it's related to how we do it. And you can see in the middle of the, the slide the, the, this thing about participation. We believe that there's no way you can develop a slum upgrading program and I would say that any policy in general, but I'm going to focus on what I know, and I'm going to focus on, on slum upgrading. If you don't involve the people of the community that you're going to transformate in the process of that transformation, you're going to have a lot of trouble. And what we believe is that you not only have to involve these people, and you don't have to think of, of the neighbors as the object or the objective of the public policy. You have to think them of them as the subject, and not only in the implementation, but also in the design of the public policy. So what we are doing is a process where we start by arriving to the neighborhood. Let's say I'm going to explain the case of Villa 20. We got there three years ago. It's a slum that has over 30,000 people living there. So it's more than 9,000 families, 4,500 houses. That's why we have a huge problem with generally two families living in one house. 
So we got there three years ago, and we started to work with the leaders of the community. We started a diagnosis of the social and the political aspects of the slum. And we created a round table where we invited pretty much everyone who had some kind of legitimacy in terms of representing the neighbors. Some of the people who came had been elected at some time, so they had a legitimacy given by the vote. Some of them were what in Argentina um, were called punteros, people who were like the intermediary between politics and the people. They were bad seen generally. We even had a lot of uh, judgment on either to put them on the table or not. We did, I believe it was a great decision, I will tell you later about that. Let's say you have the, um, the slum, the minister of housing. Generally you had some guy living on the slum who organized uh, some of the people and then he went and he negotiated with the minister. And he said, okay, give me a contract to clean the slum. And the minister said, okay, it's going to be uh, 100,000 pesos. Generally, the guy, uh, those 100 didn't went entirely to the neighborhood. He had some of them. And then he took those people to vote for the guy who the minister said, right? These are the, the punteros explained very, very briefly. They had bad aspects. But on the other hand, during lots of fears for the people in the slum, they were the only guys who solved some problem. And nobody else were listening, only these guys. So we put them on the table too. We already included on the table people who were working with the political parties that were against the government. And it was a little bit polemic within the government, but it was absolutely necessary. There was a lot of people who were very, very legitimate in the neighborhood, who were organizing people against the government. We already included them on the round table. So with that round table, we designed and we agreed with them to do a census. So a census is basically going to each one of the houses, knocking the door, who's living here, and taking some data from them. And we did not also did not only did a census, but we also uh, did what we call a RELSE. It's a relevamiento socioespacial. It's a deeper census where we ask things related to the socioeconomic status of the family, but also we draw the floor plan of the house where they are living. So we take all this information. We do this with the round table. I mean, with the people of the round table. We go to every house with them, we work a lot, we establish an office of the housing institute in the slum, and with all that information we started to work on a reurbanization law. Not a law that I prepared from beside of, uh, from, from, from a desk, but a law that we discussed article by article with the people in the round table. This was kind of the true beginning of the participatory process. There were not like kind and beautiful meetings where Everyone is sitting and hearing, I'm very happy. They were very uh, conflictive and we had a lots of disagreements, but we ended up having a very, very good uh, reurbanization law that included two things. On the, one hand, on the one hand, a first approach to the master plan of what the slum is going to look like once it's upgraded, because we were going to build new houses, very, very close actually next to the slum, but we also were going to open streets to generate space within the blocks for ventilation and light to be able to enter to all the houses. Therefore, we are, we are going to have to demolish lots of houses. And we are, we are also needing to uh, pass by law the new urban regulations regarding the, the entire place. But the other thing that we did, and I think this is also pretty interesting, and at least in, in, in terms of uh, Argentina, Argentina's political and judiciary system, it's very innovative, is that we established by law that the um, organism or the organ that is going to take decisions regarding what happens with the slum upgrading program in that slum is going to be the round table that we created in the first place. 
So basically what I said as president of housing authority is I'm not all, I'm not I'm not going to be able to take decisions regarding what's going to happen in your neighborhood unless I pass that decisions before through the round table and through the discussions that we will be having. And we established a method for that. And nowadays, if you want to take a decision in Visha 20, you have to do it with the round table that win the representatives of the, of the neighborhood. It's, I believe it's a way of giving the power back uh, to the people because actually after that law, I had a little bit less power than I had before that law and I could do less stuff at least in, in, in what you could see at first sight. I think if you consider deeper components of what we are doing, that's not the case, and we are actually having more power in the sense of the good power, the power that allows to transform uh, the entire neighborhood. Once we have that law, we started with another process. In, in this uh, project, we had different devices of participation. One of the devices is the table that I just told you about. There's another device called the Technic Table where the people actually um, selected some architects and some urban planners and some universities that they wanted to represent them and we put the architects of the government and that works on the more technical aspects of, for example, the projects for the new housing units that we were going to build. There's another participatory device, I believe the most powerful one, that has to do with the uh, blocks workshops. Because remember, we are saying that we're going to open streets and we're going to generate uh, space in the middle of the blocks. But we have to do that with the people and we have to decide with them where we're going to do that. And once you get to that level, let's say you are a block in uh, Visha 20 and we have to open a street. Here is a passage where we have to open it like this. And the street could go like, like this and this guy, this guy, this guy, her house and her house are going to be demolished. Or maybe the street could go a little bit to the right. So he and he are not going to have their house in the Visha anymore, and their houses could stay. Because we allowed for that margin to be able to happen in the discussion. So we summoned the entire block. That's, let's say, 300 uh, neighbors from that block, 300 families. At least we have to have 150. We don't start a meeting if you don't have, we don't have more than half of the people of the slum uh, of the block present. So we have 160. The first thing we do is we show them this. We show them their block. And we say, hey, this is your block. You have this passage, is very small. All the houses that you see in red are the houses that um, have a huge problem, so maybe we should demolish them, but we are going to discuss that with you. And we give each one of them the floor plan of their own house, because we already measured that, as you remember, on the rent. That's week one. Week two, we put that... Uh, plan on the table and we give them little pieces of papers that are the houses that you have there and they start to put in and out different houses that we could put out in order to open the street and to generate the space within the blocks in order to be able to actually demolish that and generate a block that is sustainable. We worked for the entire day with them or, or at least three or four hours depending on the group. You could do it on two hours, you could be like four or five. Week three, we take that work, the architects of the housing authority work with that, and they present three options for street openings and three options for spaces that we're going to free, that is, houses we're going to demolish within the block. We explain all of them. It's a long meeting. It's not that just we present this and we say, okay, you're going to vote. We explain who has to move in each one of the options, what are the, the benefits of one of the options, what are the costs, what are the benefits of other options? And on week four, they actually vote. 
And because in week five, in the first, in week one, in the first meeting, they voted the rules that were going to actually define how we work throughout the workshop. Once they vote, they already agreed that if that vote involves more than half of the community of the block and more than 60 or 70 percent, it depends. In different workshops, we had different thresholds of the people involved whose house is going to be demolished, then that vote passes and we have what you see here that is the design of the new block that has all these spaces within, that has this passage a little bit broader and that open, for example, more space here. And we have the sign of all these people that they agree on that because what we're going to do next is we're going to come and we're going to demolish all of these houses, some of these houses, and some of the houses that are below there, so we can actually open the streets, open the passages, and create all the space in the center. 30 or 40 years ago, when you heard in a slam the, the noise of hammers, and I don't know the, the, the word in English, but the, the topadora, the bulldozer coming, it was generally because the military was actually eradicating the slum and people were very, uh, very worried if they weren't in the house that the military were demolishing. Nowadays, we've already demolished in here more than um, 500 houses and we've had zero problems. Of course, everyone who has a house that is going to be demolished has the option to move to one of the houses that we build next to the slum. We don't take anybody out of their house without giving them a solution. They can have actually three solutions. Either a new house, either we, improve, uh, either we offer them a, um, a loan, or in something that was pretty innovative too, we give them the option to triangle. Let's say you are the guy living here and you have to move because everyone on your block agreed on that, but you don't want to move out of the neighborhood. For example, we give the option of this guy here, okay, hey, do you want to move to the new houses? And then he says, okay, yeah, I want to move. Okay, then your house is going to go to this guy. That, huh? No, three options. One is a new, um, new housing units. Another one is a loan to move wherever he wants. And a third one is the possibility to, to do this triangulation that I just, a loan. Yeah, a loan that then he has to pay. Yeah, yeah, and when he moves to the new units, also he has to pay. Uh, and we, 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 we've been having very good news so far in terms of payment of the houses, of course. They are very, very, very subsidized, and nobody has to pay more than 20% of what they earn at the time. But we are having good results in terms of that, even with the economic crisis that we are having in, in Argentina right now. So like I said, we have the master plan of the blocks, and then we start moving the families to the new houses, and then we start opening the streets. This is some of the numbers that we've had. We, we're working with the new school uh, here at New York to actually measure what we are doing, the metrics that I told you about at the beginning. We're working it with them, but we're also measuring the quality of the participatory process. We've had these kind of numbers from the last survey they did. We're very happy with this. It's not that we don't have trouble. I'm going to share at the end of the presentation some of the challenges that we face. But in terms of the quality of the process and the ownership that the people feel either of the new houses or of the blocks that they are uh, living in, it's been so far very, very good and, and very encouraging uh, for us. This is a picture of Villa 20, for example. These are the houses that we built. This is the slum. Some of the streets that we are opening are going to go here, here, and here. All of the buildings that you see here, people already moved. This building also, people already moved. 
If there's some architect or urban planner in the room, I don't like what we did here. You can see all these homogeneous uh, buildings. When we arrived at the housing authority, that was already under construction, so we didn't stop that. But we are pushing an agenda where we build with different designs and, and heterogeneous uh, buildings, not to generate the idea that every building is the same, every family is the same, and, and creating something that is pretty much contra natura in terms of what the people uh, expect of their houses. This is the plan of Vichavente as it was. And what you see here, I believe it's the first uh, completely designed by neighbors, neighborhood in Latin America. There's 30,000 people living here. Around half of them participated of the um, meetings that I was just telling you about. We're actually going uh, above half in, in a few weeks. Uh, so all the streets that you see opened, all the little green spaces that we generated in the middle, that are the new patios, all the common space where you have a school, a kindergarten, a health center, a market here, all of that, and even the design of the new buildings was discussed in the meetings that I just told you about and was uh, passed with a consensus from the neighbors from uh, Villa 20. We have a plan like this for the 30 blocks of the neighborhood. With the 30 of these, you get what you have up there on, on the right. This is, for example, the opening of Corvalan Street. If you went to Corvalan uh, three weeks ago, you could see this. In the last three weeks, we've finished the demolishing of the houses that were uh, in there. Of course, that's not gonna stay like that. We're working with the infrastructure for the entire neighborhood too. You're gonna see below the earth where we're gonna work with the floor uh, with um, sewage, water, um, ground, pluviales, um, draining uh, in order for the, for the slum not to drown. Uh, and of course, public space and everything. But again, this is not something that you saw in Buenos Aires not 10 years ago, not 20 years ago, each time you wanted to open a street, it used to be a huge mess. We had to demolish lots of houses to open that street. This is that viewed uh, from the air, where you see, this is Corvalan, the one that I just showed you. This was old houses. Actually, you can see two houses that in the, in the picture here are not, and, and here they were. This is another street that we already opened. This is another place where we're working. This is Fraga. These are the buildings that uh, we built. We're already moving people there. We're going to open this street, so it's going to involve demolishing all this part. All these houses are also are going to go because we're going to build a square here. It's going to be like one of the most beautiful parks, I believe, in that zone of Buenos Aires. We're going to open another street like this. That's the building, the neighborhood as it is now. This is the slum. It's a smaller slum. Here we have 1,000 families, 3,000 people. It's exactly in the middle of the city, so it's going to be a huge urban transformation for Buenos Aires. This is what it's going to look like. The park over here, this street opened, this street opens, and Fraga is going to be a huge opening in the middle of the neighborhood, so we have a lot of uh, public space that we're going to generate, and we're going to move the people to the buildings that you see here. And finally, Rodrigo Bueno. It's uh, a slum that is very symbolic because it's next to the richest uh, neighborhood in Argentina, the big building that you can see there, it's Puerto Madero. Here you have the people that actually built those buildings because most of the communities established here were the workers who built. Hello? Yeah. yeah. This is very impressive. But I have an interesting question here. The 7% kind of intrigued me. Why they didn't know? Because supposedly these people were part of the one 
table, uh, ma the management one table, are supposed to come from them. So I'm wondering first why they don't know. The second question is, um, I have seen presentations like that uh, about cities in America, where the problem is they design things and then they don't take into account the, the input of the people, which is what they should have been doing at first, and which is what you're doing. But then in your situation, I'm wondering, why is that you guys are not thinking about the economic aspect first, the economic uh, uh, development for the people before you even start planning those things for them? Because it's one thing to give them new houses, but they, there's an issue of sustainability, how they're going to survive, what, what the economic uh, environment is going to be. So why, why there is not a focus on economic incentives and economic development? And then there's another one. Uh, where, how was it to get the financing? Because you said there are budget issues. What was the political? Uh, what was the political situation to get the budget? Because I know Argentina has a lot of economical problems. Um, Thank you. On the last question, we financed this around 50 or 60 percent with the city budget. It was a decision of the mayor to invest in um, in slum upgrading. It's, it's one of the three core policies that he, he pushed in the first uh, first term. We also uh, had access to some funding by uh, the national government, and we also had access to international funding, uh, particularly CAF. And there's another huge project also in, in Buenos Aires that we are not leading that had access to funding from, from BID and, and the World Bank too. Regarding uh, the economic aspect, we are working on that. I didn't focus a lot on that uh, today, but I believe that what we are doing is not enough. That's why I put it as a challenge. We are working in different lines, one regarding training and, and employment in order for the, for the people to be able to actually get a job. And now what has to do with uh, giving more power and empowerment to the entrepreneurs that the, the neighborhood has. In Argentina, we call that economia social or economia popular. We are preparing several, and, and we are doing lots of stuff with the cooperatives that are within the neighborhood. For example, one thing we did is 20% of the people working in the construction of the new houses had to be from the slum. We forced the companies to, to hire people from the slum. We are going to take that to the rest of the government probably. And finally, we are working a lot too to bring the private sector to, to hire people there and to generate economic activity there. But the main thing about uh, economic development is that what is going to truly boost and allow for something to change in the slums is if the national economy starts to recover and starts to, uh, to grow. We've had a huge crisis the last two years. We've had like eight or nine years of pretty much not, not growing any year significantly in Argentina. But what I do believe is if that works and you don't do what we did and you don't work in the development uh, approach at the city level, you're going to get like the train of progress going, but people aren't going to be able to, to get on the train. So we are preparing there to be able to get on the train. The thing is that the train is not going. <laughs> we hope that once it starts, we're going to be able to, to actually get people um, on the plane, on the, on the train. And you had a first question, the 7%. But it's, it's a good question. For us, it was uh, pretty impressive. In Villa 20, you didn't have uh, in elections to elect representatives where, uh, like, five or seven years ago, and then the mandates were kind of uh, extended. extended. 
generally the elections in the slum are not very representative of what happens in the slum. Not a lot of people participate. They are not mandatory. So, um, and finally, uh, what it spoke of, I believe, it's of not a not a great representation by the people who were participating on the round table. And also, I think that has to do with them and probably with the government and the capacity to create more uh, community involvement. Again, the good news for me was that we couldn't get everyone to know that there was that table, but at least everyone participated, and the, the hard decisions were taken with the people. Because the hard decision is, where, where's the street going to go? Who's going to move? For that decision, it was pretty much one-on-one -on -one and, and the block level um, work. Hi, uh, I'm from Rio de Janeiro, and we have had several projects like of urbanization of our slums, but they are also not being continued by the new mayors. Like, this is something that happens so many times. So my question is to, have you created some measure to avoid this kind of problem? Once um, we were with, with the mayor of Buenos Aires at New York, we were trying for the Rockefeller Center to enter us into a, a thing they had on resilience. And the, the guy who was like making the interview asked the mayor, so how can you assure me that if you don't win, the next mayor is going to keep with this policy. And the mayor said, I can uh, get a guitar and start singing a song and telling you that I have like three laws that I'm going to pass, but if the guy doesn't want to go on with the policy, he's not going to go on with the policy. That to say that there's nothing that can actually warranty that a policy uh, keeps going. I do believe there are things that you can do. For example, we did something uh, pretty revolutionary in terms of the history of the, of the Buenos Aires City government and the, the Housing Institute, and that is we included in our team, and, and I mean people who are leading teams, not just workers, people from the opposition. We have several, uh, what we call directores generales, in the management level, people who work and who actually campaigned for the guy who was running against us uh, on the campaign. Does that mean that these guys are going to lead the institute if, if we lost? It doesn't, but at least the guy who was running for mayor against us several times said that he knew that the programs that we have are very good and he wanted to continue them if we were, uh, if, if he were elected. Fortunately, uh, we won by 55% of the vote two weeks ago, so we're going to keep on doing what we're doing. But um, I do believe there's, there's, uh, um, ha there's two things I, I, I would do. Empower the community for them to protest or to, uh, to be able to to lobby in favor of the program to, to not to stop. And the second thing is to generate consensus with the entire uh, like elite of Buenos Aires in terms of this being useful. And we work a lot with academics, uh, politicians, um, people from the media. I mean, we, we it's, it's uh, I believe it's good politics, and we're doing a lot of that for the policy to have legitimacy. Because not everyone is happy with this. Like middle classes who are under a lot of pressure because of the economic crisis, tend to hate what we are doing. And that's kind of an argument. Uh, an argument uh, saying, uh, okay, you are giving this to these people that actually took this land and are from outside Argentina, and you're not taking care of us. Uh, so you need a lot of political will from the mayor. We had that, and I think you have to work on these two or three lines that I just told you about. Uh, I think. In that sense, if we would have lost the election, the policy would have uh, continued. Uh, and, and I think that's a good thing for, for, for
Hi, thank you for the presentation, and this is truly amazing. Uh, I was wondering, politically, why didn't the mayor do better in many of these areas in the last election, given that this is so great? And the other question I have is, are people actually getting uh, property rights for their houses, both the ones that stay and the ones that move? Here, we won. First thing. Nobody knows about that because we're not, uh, I hope this is not in the media, in Argentinian media today, I know it's been recorded, but um, in some slums, in the general election, we won. It's very hard to measure because not all the people from Bichavente vote on the same district, but we have something similar to a measurement of how we did, and either we tied or we won in Bichavente. It's true that in other slums, uh, we lost um, by a lot of margin. Uh, I think the main explanation of what we lost is the economic uh, situation. For the, those of you who, doesn't, uh, who don't know about Argentinian politics, I'm not that you should. It's very, very crazy and very, very turbulent right now. The mayor is from the same political party as the actual president who lost the election, mainly because of the economic uh, um, crisis. So basically, people had a great street, new street, but they didn't have food on the, on the refrigerator. And I think there's no way you can, uh, you can beat that. And I understand them, and I would do the same probably. And, and this is very, very important, because there's a, a very conservative approach to this thing. There's a lot of people writing on the conservative media saying, oh, why did you invest there if they don't vote for you? We're not investing only to get a vote, first of all. Second, again, the, you have to do the infrastructure. You have to do the main things. But it's not, only, it's not the only variable by which they vote. I'm sure that if the economy would have been okay, we would have won, as we won in other years in, in the city of Buenos Aires. But I think the main explanation has to do with Argentina has 2% inflation, the, the economy is in recession for the last two years. It's, it's very, very hard to go on an election with people who actually don't afford to get to the end of the month and actually win. Here, with a lot of work and, and with, a, with a deep face-to-face uh, -face involvement with the community, we had a great election on the generals. We didn't have a good one in the primaries. In the generals, we, we, we tied or won. I, I cannot exactly say it because they vote in different places, but we have some ways of measuring and, and we did much better. Uh, congratulations first. I think you have great lessons from this. I'm from Mexico City, so we've been doing similar efforts for the last 20 years since well, former mayor, now President Obrador, uh, was in power. How do you mitigate three effects? The first one, um, real estate speculation. So whenever these projects are, uh, you know, announced, immediately there is, we are well aware about the power of the mafias in real estate in our countries. How do you mitigate them? The second one, how do you mitigate gentrification? In many uh, projects similar, not as well thought as this one in Mexico City, what happened was uh, the locals ended up leasing their property, selling it, or you know, finding a way to... What ended up happening was they would move to other slums. And the third one is, how do you mitigate the hostile takeover of criminal organizations like in Vinilla Vente and social organizations over the processes, like influence directly? Uh, regarding gentrification, I do believe we have a huge risk with the new houses, particularly in Fraga and Rodrigo Bueno. They are in places where the square meter is very, very expensive. What we already did is uh, we established a, a preference right for the city of Buenos Aires. That means 
the family wants to sell the house for at least five years, she or she has to offer it first to the city of Buenos Aires. And we are preparing something regarding mortgages because, like I said, it's a loan. So for 40 years or 30 years, they have to pay to us. We're going to work with that. So if they want to sell at some time of the process, they have to discuss that uh, with, the, with the city. I don't think it's a final solution. I think it's going to improve a little bit. We haven't seen gentrification uh, within the slum. Probably we're going to see that in the next few years because also regarding the first question you asked, we had an advantage. Nobody believed that we were actually going to, to upgrade the slums. And, and it sounds uh, very simple and, and, and even funny, but when we first came and we said we're going to upgrade, upgrade, upgrade the slum, there wasn't a lot of uh, enthusiasm because they didn't believe we were going to do it. So we, the first thing we did is the census. And we established that only the people who were sensed are the ones that have access either to a new house or to an improvement of their house or to the new infrastructure that we were building. That tended to, to stop. And we had a lots of cases of people who actually called their uh, cousins from another place to come. But when they came, we said, you're not on the census, so you're, uh, you're not going to be part of the solution. That doesn't mean that probably we'll have to find some solution and we've had some growth, but it's much less than we would have expected. And the other very important thing is that once the government starts working with them in this participatory table, for example, one thing that we did stop is the horizontal growth of the slum. In any of the places that we are working, even where we don't have a lot of budget, with just the fact that sat in a table and started to work with the families with very basic infrastructure, we eliminated the horizontal growth of the slum. Probably some of them constructed uh, vertically, but it wasn't very, very important, but we eliminated the, the horizontal growth. That was huge. That was huge in terms of um, urban planning and being able to actually think of a solution for the people who are there. Because if you don't stop the flow, you're never going to be able to, to... But what I can say today is that if we start a table and we have at least a little bit of budget for the people to actually believe that we are working on the neighborhood, they are the ones with us that start controlling that you don't have more people... Um, getting to the, to, the, to the slum. We, in any of the cases that I showed, we had a big mafias or narco. There was three or four guys who had, for example, huge buildings with 50 apartments. We managed to draw the plan of the new uh, neighborhood with the, the neighborhood, neighbors, not going... Uh, for example, we didn't put any street that was going to go and that made us have to demolish that uh, thing. That, you may say to me, okay, but that's not the solution. You need to, I know that, and we're working now with law enforcement and different things to, to manage to break that business. But I didn't want that thing to actually destroy the entire process. So we're working on that too. In Villa 1114, I didn't speak about this case, it's one of the most important slums uh, in Buenos Aires. We have uh, two very, very important uh, narco bands. Uh, there, what we did is first we entered, um, not we, the national government entered with Gendarmería, that's a national force. They pretty much militarized the slum, and then we started working, and with the entire community of the delegates, we could actually do the census in, in Villa 1114. 
but there, probably more similar to some of the slums that you have in Mexico, we had to do a mixture of public force and, 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 we, and, and, and what we did. That said, we are not that advanced there, so probably I would like to have your phone later because that's what we're going to do next year, and probably we're going to face lots of travel that we didn't have um, yet, and, and we will have them. Because even though the, the, Islam, the Islam is militarized, the narcos are, are still there in a less uh, violent way, but they're still there. And finally, regarding uh, political organizations, and, and we included them on the process. Uh, some of them were happy to be included, and they, they stopped some of the, the uh, polemic uh, things that were doing in the neighborhood. Some of them weren't, but they were very delegitimized in the... In the, the round table is very legitimized politically. So if you want to attack it, probably we're going to have trouble, not with the government, but with the rest of the, with the people from the slums. So that pretty much uh, isolated the two or three groups that they didn't even want for these two advance. But it was a huge, uh, lots of politics. Uh, at that level, it's uh, all politics. To understand who's who, how can you uh, gather a coalition that actually pushes the, the, the process. That's at the beginning of the process, and it's, it's, very, it's very political. It's good politics, but it's politics. Uh, hi, thanks. Thanks for the presentation. Uh, I'm curious what the teams look like that you have uh, in each of the slums. How are they composed, and is it more urban planning people, more community-centered people? We have urban planning teams and community-centered teams. They call themselves, one team is the technic team, or los técnicos, and the other team is the social team of los sociales. Uh, we've struggled a little bit, uh, either to put all of them together, to have different teams. It's something that we're still working on, because Every time you have a group of human beings, if you give them some reason to differentiate themselves, probably you're going to have some uh, struggle. Of course, the, the ones that are more community-based and, and social-oriented, they want to listen more to the people and make uh, smaller streets so you have to demolish the houses. The urban planner says, no, that's, that's not okay. We need very broad streets and very large. And so it, it's been very interesting and very rich in terms of discussion. Uh, but what I would say is we have a very, very diverse team in terms of uh, disciplines. In terms of the political spectrum, too, we have uh, uh, people that support the government, kind of a center government or center-right government, and we have people, like I said, working with the opposition who are pretty much on the left, and we're trying to make that work, and it has worked very good. And finally, we have people with different backgrounds. The guy uh, who's like the, 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 the undersecretary is in charge of all the urban planning, he worked for 40 years in the private sector. He was constructing Latin America and in Russia and, and different places. He was kind of done with the private sector, so he came to us. He leads the entire team. Uh, the guy who leads the social team uh, is a Peronist who worked for like 45 years in the state. He's like six years old. He has experience in the entire country working with political organizations. And he's, he has like nothing to do in terms of background with the other guy. I think that diversity gave us uh, a huge advantage to be able to tackle all the challenges that we had. Hi. Um, when I, so I was working at the, at the institute until a few months ago. I'm doing my master's, getting my master's degree here now. And I would really like you to talk a little bit more about um, the sustainability aspect of um, housing. We were giving housing that we're not ourselves sure that people are going to be able to sustain it uh, because of the financial situation. You yourself said it, the train is not moving. 
and it's not moving, and it's not sort of moving for the city of Buenos Aires. So we have all these great ideas, and know that there's so many things that we want, we want, would like the neighbors to like be accomplishing. And you know, there is an economic de uh, development team, and there is also uh, we have teams that sort of like walk the families through the post uh, relocation process. But um, but it's not. I, I think we we do need to like problematize this a little bit more because it's starting to be a huge issue for the families that we're working with. I we're also. I think that the political eye is not put in the job that the post-relocation team is doing. So sometimes there is a big pressure of like, okay, we need to move people because that's what we can see, right? We can see it's very obvious that the people are accessing this new housing, but the sustainability aspect sometimes is sort of like left behind in um, in the holistic approach to the process. So I would really like you to talk a little bit more about that. First of all, I completely agree. That's why I say that's the main challenge that we have. Um, I just received the survey that uh, we did in... San Antonio and La Carra, and it's good. I mean, and 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 in the end, even though it's tough, it's good news. I mean, uh, in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of a terrible situation, pretty. I think everyone that we moved is still living there. The uh, buildings are as good as they were once we moved them. All of them say that they are living in much better conditions than they were uh, years ago, and even when we moved them far away from their houses in that case, which is not what we want to do. So what I'm saying is um, we need to radically uh, change the approach on, on this issue. I agree with that. Uh, we depend a lot on what happens at the national level too. I believe we have some more things to do. I think we should integrate the social policy of the government, uh, and I think that's going to help a lot. And, and we may or may not have some news regarding that in the next three, four days or weeks, but if that happens, I think we're going to have a fair chance to to, to work better in, in the sustainability process. Like I said, I think there's a huge thing with they have to pay or not for the house. Uh, we are not uh, pushing nobody that's not paying out of the, of the houses too, and that's a political decision too. Um, but I do believe it's a huge, uh, it's a huge thing that we have to work on. If we manage to integrate the social policy of the government, and if we manage to get lots of the resources that the government has to be focused on uh, slums, for example, instead of having only the housing authority hiring people to build new houses, if you have the entire government with the premise of that 10 or 20 percent of the people that work for the government in maintenance and construction having to come from slums, we would inject a huge amount of money to the people of the slums. That's something that we are uh, considering. Um, but again, I do believe it's the main challenge that we have in the next uh, in the next few years for sure. Um, she raised an issue that it's uh, problematic all the time in, in USA, and uh, I, I want to speak about that too because I think it's one of the key aspects of, of leadership if you want to achieve big transformations. There's three uh, interests and times that are uh, not always aligned, that keep uh, crashing into each other. On the one hand, you have the time and the needs and the, the pace of the community, and what the community can and cannot do and can or cannot decide at a given moment. Generally, politics don't care much about that, and we build houses and we want everyone to be moved very, very quickly so we can have a good picture and say, okay, we... Uh, we did this on this land. Then you have the bureaucratic and the administrative times of uh, the and the pace of the bureaucracy of a government. You can have an agreement with the family, but if you didn't 
prepare all the papers well, you're not going to be able to move them and to give them the tenure. Um, somebody asked me about the tenure, I need an answer. We're giving them, everyone, everyone gets a title um, and they secure their tenure in the new houses and we're preparing a law to create kind of an intermediate title for the rest of the, the slab. And so you have the, the, the pace and, and the time of the people, of the community, you have the pace and the time of bureaucracy, and then you have the political uh, time that you also have to listen to if you want to keep working and getting funds. If we didn't finish the construction and if we didn't move some of the people at some uh, point, probably the mayor would have said, okay, you're not going to keep on that work and we're going to have other people there. The fact that you have to, to put all of that together is a huge challenge. She was part of the team that hated me because I was the guy saying, we have to move because the mayor is going to come and he's going to say, you're not going to keep on that project. The good thing is that you won. We actually finished the first term and we didn't move. We moved around 55 or 60% of the people. We still have 40% to go. And that was mainly because we never broke. In several moments, there was options to, instead of doing the entire interview process and the entire participatory process, just move people that we kind of believe that we should move. And we always took the decision to eventually pay a little bit more political cost, but don't do it. But what I want to state is that if you are leading an, organi a, 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 an authority, the one that, that I have the chance to lead now, if you don't have these three things in, in consideration, eventually you, you lose. I think it's kind of a triangle that for political management is fundamental. You need to understand how bureaucracy works and what you're going to achieve. You need to understand the pace of the people that you have to work with, and you need to understand the politics of what you're doing and, and what the political system demands from you, because if you fail at either one of those three, you may uh, fail in general. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have another five minutes, so, okay. yeah. I just wanted to build on this question of how do you operationalize this, including interagency collaboration. So you mentioned what's next is thinking about the economic development and the jobs. Buenos Aires has the Ministry of Urban Development and Transportation, but you have a separate ministry that has the economic development and entrepreneurship activities. How are those two working together? And, and any other that need to be, how are they currently working together? And how should they, do they need to be working together for this to succeed from the sustainability lens? It's much worse than that. We have the Urban Planning Authority, the Ministry of Urban Planning. We have the Housing Institute. It's independent from the Urban Planning we have the Ministry of Social Development, who has many of the training programs that could actually get the people hired. You have another unit working in a separate slum, and I'm just saying this because this is one of the main uh, challenges that we still have at the city level, the, the organization of the whole social policy area and, and the habitat area, it's very poor. You have to improve that. What I believe should happen is that you should integrate the Ministry of Social Development with the Housing Authority, so you could have a, a, a more holistic approach like the one that I showed you at the beginning, but with the entire toolkit to do that. And you need to have uh, something similar to a social cabinet where you have the, social, the, the, the Ministry of Social Development and, and, the, and the Housing Authority there, the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of, um, of, of Economic Development too. And within that uh, team, you should establish three or four lines of work that are fully cooperative. But I think that's one of the, the huge debts of governments around the world. There's um, the guy who was the 
finance minister for Salvador Allende in Chile. I don't remember his name, but he has a great uh, phrase for this thing. He says, governments organized in terms of uh, ministries or secretaries. Um, universities organize themselves in terms of departments. People have trouble and problems, and nobody thinks in terms of troubles and problems. You have this like vertical stuff and nobody's thinking horizontally. What I'm saying is that you can improve that with a social cabinet and by some of the, 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 the mergers that I just discussed. Um, but at the end, I think all of us who like politics and, and public policy, we still have a debt on how can we organize governments better in order for the individual, individual actors not to have agendas that are against. Because for the Minister of Education, I'm just 7% of her problem. And it's very, very hard to solve my 7%. It's much easier to focus on the middle classes that have other problems, but they, they do have them. So to get a few minutes with her, I mean, I can get her, but it, it's, it's harder to have her full attention. What I'm saying is that uh, we still have a lot to do on, on that issue. We, at the beginning of the government, we built uh, a, a social cabinet. The problem is that the guy who was coordinating the social cabinet ended up as the president of the housing authority, so nobody's coordinating <laughs> the cabinet right now. Uh, but um, I do believe it's, it's still a debt that we have. No, and it's not unique to Buenos Aires, as you say, but I guess without a full reorg and this restructure, what, what are the more immediate operational things? Like, the mayor's standing up saying this is a priority. Okay. How is that playing out in the weekly, bi-weekly cabinet meetings, saying, how are we doing on this together? To me, the, the most important thing that we should do uh, rapidly is to unify all the training programs that the city has. Some of them are on the Ministry of Social Development. We have some, and some are in the, in the Ministry of Finance or Economic Development. So that's, that's task one. We need to uh, organize, too, the, the, the link with the private sector to, to, to get the company to hire people from the slums. And finally, we need to, to, to change the way in which the government in general hires people, because I do believe that a lot of the people who live in the slum could actually work with the companies that are contracted by the government, and that would mean a, a really improvement. Those three things are some of the three things that I am preparing in a memo for the mayor for that to happen in the next four years. Great. Well, thank you very much for your wonderful presentation.